0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food, and this week I'm talking culture and politics of food with Hugh Fanley whittingstall His latest River Cottage book, Good Comfort, is about tweaking our favourite recipes with healthy extras, saving the pennies and losing a few pounds. But in terms of the damage it's doing,
1: both here in the UK and all over the world, obesity is much more serious than COVID. It's It's been not just ending lives prematurely, but it's been destroying the quality of life of many people in the last quarter of their lives for decades now. And we have to do something about it. And government has to do something about it.
0: It's also about food memories and generations of family recipes, rooting those cottage pies and weekend pancakes into who we are. And as we navigate our way through a double whammy of climate and obesity crisis, it couldn't have come at a better time. But as we chatted on the day that Liz Truss stepped down as Prime Minister, I suggested that he couldn't have known that the cost of living crisis was going to add to those massive challenges.
1: No, that's absolutely right. Um, except that most of us, quite a lot of the time, are in a little bit of a crisis around food because we could all eat better. You know, there's room for everyone to eat more healthy food and more and food that's more sustainably sourced and to get more pleasure out of it. You know, ultimately, um, you've got to offer people joy in a cookbook. You know, the excitement of eating really, really great food. And in my last book... Uh, eat better forever. I did come up with a fairly, you know, radical approach to overhauling your diet, uh, with some, I believe, really, really lovely recipes. Um, but the, but uh, some recipes that might look quite different, perhaps some of them from the kind of food most of us eat every day. And lots of people were in, responded brilliantly to that, and I had wonderful feedback and um, lots and lots of uh, wonderful. Uh, emails and and uh lovely posts on my instagram and all that stuff and for the next outing i thought well that that is great but i i also recognize that there are a lot of wonderful dishes that are passed down through the family the uh, the the family favorites we don't want to give those up we want we you know they're they're the food that wrap a warm blanket around us and uh, have been handed down from our grandparents our our grannies and our mums and and aunts and uncles and all those lovely treats that we grew up and that we're passing on to our old children we don't want to have to junk that food it means too much but maybe we can tweak it just a little bit maybe we can make it a little bit better for us so that's that's what good comfort means it's uh Comfort that's good in both
0: the senses of making us feel good, but being good for us at the same time. Yeah, it's all the traditional lovely comfort foods that we love, like shepherd's pie and pancakes and soups and stuff, but using better ingredients, using less but better meat bulking it up with some pulses using whole foods wherever possible. It's a brilliant idea. What I particularly like about it, I'm always grappling with why we have such a problem with food in this country and I've spent my life trying to work it out. And one of the things you just said there is is really sort of important I think. We need to ground our food culture in the way that the more stable food cultures have done for hundreds of years, you know, thinking about the you know the Middle East, the Italy, France, Spain, they have stable food cultures which comes from passing their recipes down from generation to generation and this is something that comes up again and again in your book isn't it you know your first food moment for example your shepherds pie cooking at home with your mum you talk about how important it is to cook alongside your mother
1: absolutely I mean that's that that's that's why we're talking really that's why I've ended up doing what I do why I've written the books I've done and made the shows I've been lucky enough to be able to do. It's because I learned to cook with my mum and I loved it. And and I didn't really want to let it go. It meant so much to me that I've kept it going and somehow, somewhat flukily, uh, turned it into a career. But it definitely goes way back to those days when I was uh, five or six, you know, when I started. And then by the time I was eight or nine, I had a few basic skills. but uh, And I could I could pull a book off the shelf and just about follow a recipe. But that was never as much fun as actually cooking with my mum. Yeah. And shepherd's pie, shepherd's pie is one of those things that just lives long in the memory of the making and the eating. And there was a particular ritual to it. Um, we always made it. Uh, the recipe in the book starts assuming you're probably going to go and buy lamb mince. But there's a variation saying, you know, you could definitely make this dish using leftovers from a roast. And that's actually how it always happened when I was growing up. The Sunday roast lamb might sometimes be roast beef, but if if there was just enough left over to eke out a shepherd's pie, and my mum had a good eye for that, and, uh, you know, she'd never buy a half leg of lamb. She'd buy a whole leg of lamb or a whole shoulder knowing that whatever was left was going to be put to good use in the middle of the week. So she'd whittle off all the, the meat from the bone and put it in a big pile, and then we would clamp this crank-handled cast-iron mincer no 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 magic mix no, no 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 powered gadgets were involved it was all uh, it was a hand tool and you could you could pick these beautiful things i've still got one you can pick these things up very easily um in markets and things anyway you clamp it to the kitchen table and i would turn the handle as she fed through the 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 leftover meat and it comes out in these squiggly wiggly worms out of the mincing machine into a bowl and, um, we'd take it in turns to, to push the meat through and turn the handle. And of course, she was always very anxious that I'd sh- shove my fingers in and mint and mince them. But, you know, I was just about competent enough not to do that. So first all the meat would go through and then she'd cut up an onion or maybe, maybe two onions, depending on the amount of meat. And they would go through the mincer. She didn't chop the onions, she put them through the mincer. Yeah. And finally, and I remember this really well, the last thing to go through the mincer was a crust of bread. Yes. That went through to clean the mincer and also it's a little bit extra in the in the dish. And then she would fry everything together, the, the, the meat and the onions and the minced bread uh, until it was nicely browned and then add any leftover gravy that had been saved, a squirt of tomato puree, usually from a tube, uh, maybe a dash of Worcester sauce, a little pinch of salt and pepper. And and just a, if a splash of water was needed to loosen it up, and that was it and it was absolutely delicious meat underneath a little bit of onion mashed potato on top and the other job i had which i loved was forking up the mash on the top into little kind of ridges and peaks and uh, because that meant that then, and the more you could make it kind of ridged and peaky the more it was going to go crispy and brown in the hot oven uh and that would give you that crispy topping. But also, if perfection was achieved, pretty reliably it was, the sauce underneath the meaty stuff would bubble up around the edges of oh, the pie dish, goodness. and and trickle or, trickle over the side, and you'd get that extra crispy bit where you not only had a bit of burnt mash, but a sort of almost burnt bits of meat and juice that would create a, a sort of sticky, meaty, potatoy glue actually i don't know, I, i'm not sure if you can hear this I can hear my my tummy rumbling even <laughs> talking about this so apologies if that's coming out uh too loud in the recording um but it, it it's it's just unforgettable uh, and and not least because I, I still do it to this day, and I, I do it with my kids. I actually really like to – I chop the meat by hand now. I like to get – I like to, I make a slightly chunkier one um, that I get by chopping the meat by hand. But otherwise, it's much the same process, except for a long time now, I've always put a bit more veg in. So yeah. I put some – I will actually fry onions, the, the magic trio of stock veg, onions, carrots, and celery. I'll sweat them down uh, – and and then do the mince, and then put the two together, and then I might add a handful of lentils or a tin of beans, uh, just to make it go a little bit further. And all, none of which stops it being delicious. And arguably, I, and I would definitely argue, the extra veg make it more delicious
0: and better, but for it's
1: you. A, and better for you. Yeah. But it's a it's a balancing act. You can't you can't just endlessly dilute the meat with veg and beans until there's hardly any meat left. Yeah. It's it's a it's a balancing act. So you're working up to instead of it being like. 90 percent meat and 10 percent onions it's about half meat half veg and it's still super meaty So it's it's a good way to go. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You've completely popped a food memory for me there. I completely forgot about my parents having a minza. That that description you've just been through is exactly what I used to do as a child too. Wow. Completely forgot about it. Um, These things are buried. But it's very interesting, isn't it? You know, I had a a very unusually foodie childhood. My parents were very interested in food. But I I knew that I was very much uh, an unusual child to be interested in food at that time. And I know that you do a lot of campaigning with the Food Foundation, as I do, as well as a lot of other charities, campaigning for children to learn to cook and to eat better. And I wonder if that particular memory that you've just talked about is crucial to learning to eat well or to, to have food in your life from a very early age. That what I'm really
1: interested in what you said, Gilly, because whether you think maybe we're both quite unusual children to have been that interested in food. And I would put it slightly differently. So I don't think we're unusual to be interested in food because I think actually almost all kids are potentially really interested in food. They've got a very natural curiosity about it. But what was perhaps unusual was the extent to which our interest was nurtured and uh and indulged maybe even in my case i would probably dare to say it was probably even indulged um by my mum and so that it started to sit very very deeply with me and and has sort of and and then so to answer your question yes Definitely, that was a formative experience, and probably over and above what most people would experience. But as parents we 've all got an opportunity to foster that natural curiosity that our kids undoubtedly have about food and what it looks like and where it comes from and uh, We just need to put put real food in front of them when they 're young uh, not even and not even yeah. try and make them eat it necessarily, but just to literally play with it you know give Give a, give a baby a carrot and if he or she sticks it up his nose or throws it across the room, that's fine. Just it's knowing
0: what those things are. And and actually, there's never a better time than a crisis to really rethink how to feed your family. You know, if you have to cut down on your spending, then actually cooking from scratch is a really good way to do it. Uh, what you're talking about using less but better meat and filling it up with lentils or extra vegetables means that the overall dish is going to be cheaper. You're using, you're learning resilience skills as you rethink how to feed your family.
1: I th- resilience is a is a good word and an important one, and it's what and we need to think in terms of this for, for the next generation. Because although the so, sort of the food, the industrial food revolution. Um, looked initially like a bit of a miracle. It, it, it freed many people, women in particular, from a kind of dependence, you know, from from, from, from being in the kitchen and, and being always expected to put food, freshly cooked food on the table for their families and help women uh, find careers. And that that's all fantastic. Um, but having delivered that in by presenting us with uh, frozen foods and ready meals and things that saved a lot of time. Having delivered that, the the, the 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 food, the industrial food revolution kind of just kept going relentlessly, producing more and more uh, sort of ready-made foods, cheaper foods, uh, instant foods, takeaways, and things that that um, if we chose to go down that route, absolved us of any need to cook whatsoever. And at that point, what was, what started as a liberation has actually ended up. Um, uh, diminishing uh, our, our lives and diminishing our skill set and meaning that um, we've raised a generation uh, that in, 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 in the case of many, many people really don't know how to cook at all. And I don't think we need, I don't think we want to repeat that now. We need to find the sweet spot. And and really, I think everyone should be equipped with Enough skill in the kitchen to put a healthy, tasty meal together for their family. And as you absolutely say, resilience will be the result. Resilience against the sort of crazy, uh, times that we've got right now with food prices rocketing and people very anxious about paying their bills. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: And these, and, and, and these are the kind of dishes people should be, be, uh, learning to cook because the great thing about the comfort food repertoire, the, the sort of classics of it anyway, on the whole, they're not made with expensive ingredients. And that's the, that's why they have this sort of universality. Some of them are thrift dishes, like shepherd's pie really should be a leftovers dish. Oh. The, well, you know, the dumplings in your stew, you know, the things that m- mean that the meat, everything that makes the meat go a little bit further, and we can now take that exercise... Uh, a little bit further we've got lovely things that that like you know that nice tin of butter beans. i love butter beans and i love adding adding a tin of butter beans to any meaty stew and there's a lovely asian pork hot pot in the dish which probably isn't an ancient comfort food but it's definitely entered the modern classic with that creamy very yielding slow cooked pork belly with the spicy flavors that we love um i would never make that now without without adding lots of veg and also a tin of butter beans because they take up that sauce so beautifully
0: Yes, exactly. And kind of creating a larder. You know, it's, uh, today's episode of Cooking the Books, as, as we're talking, is the, the pasta grannies. You know, they are an absolute archetype of, of resilience and, yeah. and keeping a tradition, an Italian tradition alive. I mean, you know, thinking back to my grandmother's larder, I mean, she was very poor but she had a fabulous larder because she pickled and she stored beans and she had an allotment in the back garden and she grew and she was the most resilient woman I could ever imagine. What she did for us all the time was... Pikelets or drop scones. She's Welsh, so they were called pikelets, and that's your second food moment. Simple, so, so cheap, but utterly delicious. And when I looked at this drop scones, I thought of my nana immediately. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Drop scones and pancakes, uh, again, have been something I've been making since I was a kid. And they're the first thing my kids learnt to make. And we almost every weekend, almost without fail, actually. Uh, someone and now it's usually my youngest daughter will make either pancakes or drop scones probably on a saturday morning then there'll be enough batter left to have them on sunday as well and it, it isn't just a treat it's and it, the idea that the, the idea that in some houses pancakes only get eaten on pancake day is is to me completely crazy because it's literally about the easiest throw together dish and it's so nutritious and so delicious and there's such an opportunity to make it feel treaty with a Little special topping if you, whether you like a little, a squeeze of lemon and a dusting of sugar or a little bit of your favorite jam or whether you want to get a bit greedy and melt a few chocolate drops on the pancake. All those things are completely uh, valid and delicious ways to enjoy pancakes and drop scones. Ultimately, the, probably the drop scone for me is a slightly bigger treat. It's, it seems to have that – it doubles up for as a tea-time treat as well. We tend yeah. to have them at breakfast, but it definitely doubles up as a tea-time treat. Unexpected visitors, not time, not enough time to make a cake. Five minutes, if that, yeah. to, to pull together yeah. a drop scone batter. And, and these, fun
0: for the kids. I tr- mean, it's
1: tremendous alchemy. Tremendous fun. And so quick. And, and it's, it's the sort of visual side of it where – with both the pancakes and drop scones, where if you put a cake in the oven, you sort of miss that magic of how that weird liquid batter puffs up and yeah. turns into something that you can slice and has this lovely fluffy texture. And then you end up, how do you get from that goo into a cake? It, it, in the case of a dropscon, you see it happening before your very eyes, because you literally put a spoonful of this mi- mixture and it puffs up and the bubbles start to appear on the top and you flip it over. And suddenly you've got this liquid thing has turned into this little cake uh, that you can flip off with your spatula or put a little nut of butter on and then again, whatever topping you like.
0: Yeah, but the point of it is to use wholemeal flour, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yes, but if, 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 a light wholemeal flour, not a strong bread flour, but there's, you can now buy a, a nice light wholemeal cake flour. Uh, or, or you can go 50-50, you know, with, with my, most of my baking now, cakes, Victoria sponge, biscuits, drop scones, pancakes, I'll use the light wholemeal flour. When it comes to the pastry, like in my apple pie and the rough puff pastry that I really like to use on sausage rolls, if you go 100% wholemeal, it's virtuous, yes, but the pastry's a bit leathery. If you go 50-50, half wholemeal, half plain white flour, it's absolutely delicious. And it actually has a kind of nuttier flavour and, and a really delicious flavour. So, so, you know, there's no kind of hard and fast rule. You must go 100% wholemeal. It's the only way. If you add a little bit of wholemeal flour, if you put a handful of bran into your, into your cake, that would still add some goodness. Uh, lots of ways of making these tweaks, but I've set out what I think are the easiest and most straightforward ones in the book.
0: The third food moment I love, I, I'm surrounded by nettles in my garden at the moment and I keep thinking, oh, I must cut those down. Now, I know that I shouldn't, but I probably would have done if I hadn't been talking to you today. I am going to gather them and I am going to make this nettle soup. And I was again thinking about how exciting it can be for children to go and gather something quite... you know, Something dangerous, absolutely. Yes, dangerous in the garden. The, The
1: nettle is really an extraordinary thing in a way, because it's probably the plant that almost every child learns to identify, even if you even if you have very little connection with nature or spend very little time outdoors, sooner or later, you're going to wander close to a nettle and your parents, whoever's with you is going to say, don't touch, that's going to sting you. That's a bad plant. You see that plant, never forget what it looks like. It's really, really naughty. Never go near it again. And if you do get stung, you really learn that lesson. So here's the the flip side of that. You see that plant, Don't touch it because it'll sting you, but put a pair of gloves on and pick the top crown of uh, rich green leaves off in the spring. And just to come back to the seasonality of it, um, you don't want to pick nettles once they've gone stringy and straggly. But actually, Gilly, if you'd you'd strimmed your nettle patch a few weeks ago, you'd be getting this second autumn growth of young nettles coming through again, which by a little bit of luck uh, we've got here at home, although, uh, to be honest, it's no longer luck. It used to be, oh, hang on, what are these young nettles doing? Oh, yeah, we strimmed them a few weeks ago. So you can get a second helping. For, for the, So it used to be a very seasonal thing from a, first nettles peeping through often in a mild February, and then you'd have March and April, and by May, they're starting to get go to seed and get straggly, at which point... Um, the stems are quite tough so you'd have to pick all the individual leaves off and also the oscilic acid is quite high and the taste isn't quite as sweet not to say it can't be used but they're they're definitely younger nettles are definitely at their best i know there are people listening to this who will think i'm sorry i'm not going to eat nettles they think that it must be if not poisonous just simply not appetizing but if you if you like any green vegetable at all, if you can if you can be persuaded to eat, ever eat spinach or cabbage or kale, you're gonna like nettles because they're not harsh tasting. They've got a really lovely kind of vegetable-y taste, and the sting when you cook them, of course, is completely uh, you know obliterated. And so you could just cook them like a spinach, but they do blitz into the most wonderful deep green soup. And the only other ingredients you need to make that. Uh, that classic trinity again the stock veg of one onion one carrot a stick of celery if you've got it if you've got a few leeks or a leek, you could use that instead of the onion uh and and then maybe a potato to thicken it up but actually instead of the potato you can use a handful of beans or half a tin of beans which will blitz it and make it when you blitz up the soup that'll make it beautifully creamy and it's as green soups go you know it's it's as delicious, if not more so, than the best made watercress soup or any any green soup. And I just like to finish it off by slipping a poached egg in uh, with it. Uh, and then when you yes. break the yolk and then dip the bread or toast into the soup. And then you've kind of, if you've got a, a generous helping of the soup with a poached egg in and some toast, you've basically got supper and it costs nothing it, it costs next to nothing you know it probably less than 50 p a head for a uh, nettle soup the it's the 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 egg and the slice of toast is going to be uh the only thing that really costs anything uh there's just a couple of veg from the larder and a and a half a bag of nettles
0: yeah exactly that it sounds like we have the same childhood um in your fourth food moment as well um you went foraging for mussels with your parents on family holidays in Wales and Cornwall. Um, I went to the Gower. Where did you go?
1: A place called Aberdovey, uh, yeah. just a little bit further north. Beautiful beaches and there was every day... It was a, uh, My sister always wanted to go to the sandy beach and I always wanted to go to the rocky beach. And the, 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 what I liked about the rocky beach is it had lots of rock pools and they had prawns in them and they had at low tide you could go out and pick mussels off the rocks. Exactly and this idea that you could get a free feed off the beach was just incredible mm. and uh, and it was prawns and mussels you know we caught prawns in the rock pools with our nets and we would go out at at, at low tide and get mussels off the rocks And a lot of pulling of the beards because those wild muscles, slow growing wild muscles, they can get quite big and beardy. So uh, there'd be a lot of going back and uh, and pulling out the beards with a with a my mum used a teaspoon rather than a knife because it was blunt. and And you just use the edge of it to grip the beard between the teaspoon and your thumb and and pull it out.
0: I mean, it's a classic recipe that you're talking about as a classic moule marinier. But actually, this is the, one of the most sustainable foods that we should all be eating.
1: Yeah. Now the farmed mussels and the farming of mussels has, has been going for quite a while now. And it's it's one of the few forms of aquaculture that's essentially quite unproblematic because there are no inputs. You don't have to feed the mussels. So you don't have that difficult question that you have with fish farming is, what are you going to feed them on, and where do you get the feed from and then you end up uh, taking a lot of fish out of the sea and instead of eating that fish, you turn it into fish meal and and that 's the conundrum of the uh, over the sustainability of farmed fish uh, farmed shellfish mussels in particular, but also oysters um, you just have to get your ropes and your equipment in the right place it 's a case of if you build it, they will come, and that 's exactly what happens with mussels you You put the ropes down in the right bit of sea. Uh, and then, and the mussel spat, almost invisible little planktonic stage of mussels, just decides to attach itself to the ropes. A few months later, you can see them growing, and then within a year or two, you've got a harvest of mussels. And I've actually visited quite a few mussel farms now in, in Scotland, but more recently, an amazing offshore mussel farm here in Devon, which has been pioneering open ocean mussel farming, and it's taken an area that was heavily overfished quite close to the shore where there used to be a lot of heavy dredging for scallops and it was pretty barren. They put their ropes and their big concrete anchors down and their big heavy duty floating buoys. And, you know, you can see the intervention. It to put it bluntly, it doesn't look natural, and that part of it isn't natural, but it's so it's very robustly put together, so it's not breaking up in storms or anything like that. And the chains and chains of muscles that are just naturally arriving on these ropes have attracted other species. There are lots of other little tiny things grow in between the mussels, little uh, little invertebrates and other creatures, and then other fish come in to feed around the mussels, even occasionally to feed on the mussels themselves, if a, a big enough wrasse can munch up a, a small mussel. But essentially, in the process of farming food in the ocean, you've created a habitat that supports other life in the ocean. So now local fishermen go and fish around the edges of the mussel farm for for the fish that have come to feed off the mussels. So they get
0: some benefit out of them as well. It's exactly how we should be eating, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the message of the book, isn't it? Just tweaking to eat a little bit more healthily, to think more consciously about the the, the planet. It's very easy using our old traditional comfort food recipes that we've been eating. We know so yeah. well. It's just simple. You've been changing our mind about food for, well, Nearly 30 years, haven't you? We still need to have our minds changed about food. We are still talking about food insecurity and the sixth largest economy in the world. How come you're amongst a community of game changers in food?
1: And we still haven't changed the game. (laughs) It's not your
0: fault. It's just why are we
1: not listening? Uh, uh, Thank you you for saying it's not my fault. Uh, uh, and And I happen to agree with you. Um, I think that the, the, those of us uh, and, and it's, you know, the work you've done with the Food Foundation also is brilliant. And, you know, we have to recognise incredible work of people like Jamie Oliver and Tom Kerridge and indeed Marcus Rashford, the attention he's brought to these issues. It's none of our jobs to sort out the food crisis we've chosen our professions because we love food and we hope to inspire people. And during in the course of that, we've taken on a sense of responsibility and, and that we, we'd we like to, to help people. But there are some people who aren't really that interested. And in why should they be, frankly, in what we've got to say? And And we're never going to solve the problem. We can draw attention to some of the problems and we can offer some solutions to some people who are naturally kind of uh, fall into our orbit, if you like, or who who decide to that they m- might be interested in listening to what we've got to say. But that's not going to change the fundamental difficulties we have. Uh, and, and nor should anyone ever expect it to. Telly won't do it. Cookbooks won't do it. Campaigns won't actually do it, although they can draw a lot of attention to it. This needs to come from government. It really it does. Needs, it, it needs to be built into the way we educate our kids and the, and, and the way we also address... The industrial food machine. Uh, you know there are levers that can be pulled. There is legislation that can make a difference. We've seen the the genuine success of the sugar tax, that even though it went against the grain uh, of of a particular political ideology. Um, this idea that it's not appropriate for governments to interfere with people's lives, or you know, particularly particularly to tell them what to eat, this, this intervention of the nanny state, that we, we it's not the government's job, then you, you, you have to say, well, you've got a national health service, right? So at some level, the government accepts that the, the health of the people is their responsibility. Well, what people eat is literally primary health care. That's where it all starts. And I th- had dared to think that with the craziness of COVID, we had finally unpicked this ridiculous ideological uh, blockage or unblocked it, if you like, because uh, this idea that we're not going to be the nanny state, we won't interfere in people's health. Well, guess what? So big was this did this crisis seem to be that we were all told to stay at home we weren't we we weren't encouraged to eat healthily or particularly or to do anything like that we were told we couldn't leave our own homes we couldn't meet each other and that this was vital for the health of the country um and and i'm not saying that was wrong but if a government can intervene on that level for what is an emergency of health then obesity is an emergency Mm. It just happens to be a very, you know, an emergency that's chronic and has been going on for quite a long time and and doesn't seem somehow quite as urgent as a disease that's going around the globe. But in terms of the damage it's doing, both here in the UK and all over the world, obesity is much more serious than COVID. It's been been not just ending lives prematurely, but it's been uh, destroying the quality of life of many people in the last quarter of their lives for decades now and we have to do something about it and government has to do something about it and we know what levers can be pulled we know we can stop advertising junk food to kids so that unhealthy habits stay with them for life we know we can educate kids better in school about what healthy food looks like we can change the levers of food taxes so that they nudge uh, big business in the direction of reformulating their foods to become more healthy so there are many levers that can be pulled and we got to a point where we had a government that was on the brink of pulling them and suddenly the 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 great monster of ideology has reared its head again thought in some bizarre way to be a vote winner among a i think a relatively small section of the population it's like oh here we go again and, and, and so I'm not I'm not going to pull punches here. I mean it is ridiculous that and by the time this goes out we we, we might not have the same personnel in charge it by undoubtedly the way but won't. but right now we have I'm not just going to talk about the prime minister but she, the ideological thing is coming from there but we we have a health secretary who it actually wants to reverse uh, progress in, in in terms of helping people to give up smoking and find healthier food. Mm. She just thinks that the, 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 only, the only job of the health service is to treat sick people, not to stop them getting sick in the first place. Uh, and again, it's this ideological nonsense. And it's going to cost lives. It's already costing lives. I hope we can turn it around as soon as possible with a change of personnel at the top. And uh, uh, maybe by the time this goes out, there'll be people who say, well, that must have been recorded last week because we've had (laughs) two more prime ministers and three health secretaries since then. Yes. Um, And hopefully we'll have someone in place who gets, funnily enough, Jeremy Hunt was just starting to get it uh, while he was health secretary and had made some, he made the commitment to reduce childhood uh, obesity by half uh, by 2030. That was his, that was his watch. Uh, now he's back in, uh, in a position of influence, to we say. Gosh knows what that position of influence will be when, when this goes out. But uh, It's fast-moving stuff, but the fundamentals of it don't change. This is stuff we need to get done.
0: Jamie Oliver always used to say, when he was a bit beaten down by his campaigns, you can make the government sit up and listen, but then the government are going to get up and leave. It has to be society that changes. And I totally agree with you that it has to come from government. It needs to be policy to change the entire food system. But it has to be people who will buy into that. And, you know, we've done so much with television. Let's just have a think about what life was like pre-1998 when Nigella started to. When Jamie Oliver suddenly burst onto the screens with Naked Chef, you know all that storytelling. You then came on with River Cottage, showing us what smallholding could be, and and I was working on Food File where you burst onto the screens for the first time. You know Pat Llewellyn, who was working on that second series after after me on Food File, she went on to totally change the way that stories were told about food with. Two Fat Ladies, Jamie Oliver, uh, Gordon Ramsay, there was a whole load of storytelling that made us interested in food, made us sit up and listen and, and aspire to be like some of those people and cook the kind of food that they were cooking. Surely there is something to be done as we sort of take apart that biggest story that TV ever told and use it to save the planet, if if not our our own health.
1: Absolutely. Um, telly pr- presents us with some amazing opportunities to engage the public with really important issues, issues that are about their daily lives as well as the the the, the, the great um, issues of of, of of the planet. Um, the but the, uh, the the slight drawback is that you you I wouldn't say you only ever get one shot at it, but you the, Telly w- tends to hand you an opportunity and give you a short time span. And then it wants to move on to the next thing. It wants a new story.
0: Shiny,
1: shiny, shiny. Sh- shiny, shiny, shiny. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was uh, put in an a, you know, amazingly privileged and challenging position to be able to make Britain's fat fight for BBC... And we uh, actually came up with a way of doing these things where we did get at least two bites of the cherry because we we always uh, built into these shows the idea of a follow up program that would come about a year later where we were genuinely able to look at the the various uh, changes we'd attempted to put into place or whether it was families or businesses or even government that we were challenging and say, well, this is what we did, and where did it get to? And it was a great device, because you were always able to, if you managed to get an interview with a, a government minister, you were always able to say, I'm coming back next year. And you were. So the BBC had this, the, the, the nows to back us in that proposition, we're, we're going to come back. So we got, we got two bites at the chair, we came back a year later, we managed to put the pressure on. But we didn't necessarily come back a year after that, and a year after that, and a year after that. And, and and I have I have pitched T V ideas where where you would do where you would build into the fabric of like a food watchdog, a series where you would keep coming back and keep the pressure on. And maybe we'll get to make those shows at some point. Um but yes there's a lot T V can do, engaging the public, but it can't do it all. We should find cross party consensus about getting the nation eating a healthier diet um and you could maybe quibble a little bit about the detail but the fundamental idea that prevention is important and getting the nation eating healthily is important should be passed down whatever the whatever the color of the party that's uh, currently uh, occupying westminster that's something that should be a permanent consideration
0: Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more about how I think TV storytelling can save the planet, my book, Taste and the TV Chef, which came out in 2021, explores the backstory of TV chefs from the producers, the commissioners, the director general of the BBC and the chef's point of view. And if you want to know more about the Food Foundation's work that I do, you can listen to Right to Food podcast wherever you find your podcasts and at foodfoundation.org. And as always, you can sign up to my newsletter at jillysmith.com and follow me on Instagram. I'm at foodjillysmith and I'll see you next week.